When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Natalia Shpulova-Said. I'm a host of New Books in Ukrainian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Sergei Zhuk, author of KGB Operations Against the USA and Canada in Soviet Ukraine, 1953-1991, published by Routledge in 2022. Dr. Zhuk has taught American history, Russian, Soviet, and Ukrainian history at Ball State University, the University of Pennsylvania, Johns Hopkins University, and Columbia University. His research interests are international relations, knowledge production, cultural consumption, religion, popular culture, and identity in the history of Imperial Russia. Ukraine and the Soviet Union. Dr. Zhuk's uh, scholarship was awarded with numerous research grants, including Cannon Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, Fulbright, Petroyatsk, and Timkiv Ukrainian Studies grants from the University of Toronto, and Harriman Institute, Columbia University. Just recently, he was invited as a Fulbright scholar to teach in 2022 in Estonia. His published books include Soviet Americana, The Cultural History of Russian and Ukrainian Americanists, Nikolai Balhabitinov and American Studies in the USSR, People's Diplomacy in the Cold War, to name but a few. Hello, uh, Sergei, and uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Congratulations on your uh, new book. Thank you for inviting. So let me start with a quote uh, from your book. All KGB operations against the United States and Canada were influenced directly by Stalin's politics during and immediately after the Great Patriotic War, noted one retired KGB officer. How to deal with the displaced people, many of whom were residents of Soviet Ukraine in Europe, how to trace and punish the Nazi collaborators and war criminals, he continued. These were major problems for Stalin's administration, which became his legacy for the organs KGB work through the entire 1950s. So could you provide some background for the book that covers the 1953-1991 years with a special focus on the KGB operations against Canada and the U.S. and Soviet Ukraine? Uh, uh, we need to understand that entire politics of KGB was shaped by Stalin's policy by the beginning of uh, the Cold War with the United States. And for Stalin and um, his comrades, um, United States was major adversary, but uh, because for his um, concept of building Ukraine as a bastion, as a fortress, uh, fighting American, British, other imperialism, uh, Ukraine became very important and uh, besides um, besides United States, of course, other places where Ukrainian diaspora, Ukrainian refugees lived, uh, became very important for his concept of strengthening 
uh, Ukrainian socialist fortress in this struggle. And these countries were United States, major adversary of uh, Soviet Union, Canada. Mm -hmm. um, and again, uh, uh, Stalin knew that more than 50% of Canadian communists were Ukrainians, people of Ukrainian origin. So that's for him was very important um, uh, signifier as well. And plus Britain, because many refugees went uh, to, to Britain. And as a result, uh, because in his concept, um, these Ukrainian nationalists, many of them collaborated with uh, Nazi, uh, were major enemies for his um, this concept of strong Ukrainian socialist fortress on Western borders of the Soviet Union. Because of this, he uh, started all these, you know, operations against Ukrainian diaspora. And that's why I started, I began um, my conversation with this phrase, because we've forgotten sometimes, especially during Perestroika, uh, during the post-Soviet developments, that KGB was a creation of Stalinism. Even with different name, OGPU, Ankevadi, uh, whatever, um, it was major uh, secret organization, secret army for political organization known as Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And this is very important uh, for me uh, to understand because sometimes um, Western scholars try to um, westernize this notion of KGB as uh, mostly, you know, well, uh, analyzing uh, elements of intelligence, uh, spying, uh, but still, uh, we need to know this phrase, active measures. And uh, these phrases uh, uh, were uh, part of this uh, of this uh, ideology, KGB ideology. It was not just spying, but also organizing covert operations to divide enemy, to uh, discredit enemy, to use enemy, um, to um, influence enemies through disinformation or bad information. Uh, and uh, this was major uh, uh, methods or strategy of this organization. Again, all these methods of active measures were a reflection of major ideology, ideology of Soviet communism fighting American imperialism on uh, international uh, arena. So uh, this is a major premise of, of my book because this will affect not only international politics but also domestic politics of the Soviet Union. They were, fi uh, they were fighting uh, KGB as um, army of Communist Party. 
this organization was fighting its enemy on two fronts, domestic front mm -hmm. and international, and they were connected. That's why uh, my major uh, emphasis in this book was on connection of these two fronts. And documents which I studied to reading and to read in uh, Kiev actually gave me plenty of material about this connection. That's why uh, it's my first attempt to <laughs> cover these documents had this title, KGB operations in Soviet Ukraine, mm -hmm. the domestic, but targeting two major enemies of socialist Ukraine project of Stalin. Mm -hmm. I would like to... I would like to go back for a moment to this notion of KGB operations or active measures. And you quote Seth Jones, who says, During the Cold War, the Soviet Union developed a broad campaign to influence populations across the globe, which was best captured in the phrase active measures. And there is also a quote from Olga Bertelsen, uh, who explains the um, dimensions, with, uh, these two dimensions that you uh, mentioned in her um, explanation of active measures. They, active measures, had two dimensions, domestic and foreign. Their task was to enforce and reinforce a Soviet version of the story, a discourse, a rhetoric a rhetor and rhetoric across geographical and political lines. During the Cold War, the stability and omnipresence of the Czechist narrative and discourse guaranteed change in public opinion, and this change had to be universal. The prevalence of this discourse ultimately suppressed and marginalized other voices, truths, and discourses that were inadmissible for the Soviet regime." End of quote. Well, uh, we sometimes forget that uh, Soviet Union was ideological project. It's, again, ideology played a very important role in the West, of course, in the United States, but never in the world, probably except fascist regimes uh, in Germany, in uh, Italy, uh, this totalitarian ideological model of Soviet Union had major framework to fight. And uh, that's why people in the West sometimes couldn't understand the essence of active measures, mm -hmm. essence of any operation. You know, we sometimes tend to divide a active measures and spine operation, intelligence operation. But in um, everyday life of KGB operatives, KGB age KGB officer, they were mixed together because major goal was ideological goal to present positive picture of Soviet reality, of Soviet politics. If it's major ideological project, it means that you could involve any ideological institution and venue in countries of major adversary, media, press, television, radio, um, political debates, political organizations of any sort, leftist groups, a peace movement and peace organization. And the most important venue was, of course, centers of studies, especially studies which uh, were controversial from ideological point of view. I mean, uh, centers of Ukrainian studies. Uh, for example, when in 1968, 
uh, Harvard uh, Ukrainian Research Institute was uh, created. Uh, KGB immediately attacked this effort. They tried to collect uh, information about Amelian Pritzak. The same, uh, they did the same with Columbia Investment. They tried to create Center of Ukrainian Studies and with Toronto. Uh, they not only tried to uh, monitor these centers because they were important from ideological point of view. You know, they hated all non-socialist interpretation of Ukrainian reality. That's why centers like um, Harvard Center or Toronto Center uh, were dangerous for ideological um, ideological framework of Soviet Ukraine. So they try to discredit these centers, um, finding collaboration with Nazi or collaboration with CIA and American or Canadian intelligence. But at the same time, they try to figure out how to influence these people um, because these people needed sometimes um, access to Ukrainian archives, Ukrainian li libraries, Ukrainian uh, sources. And they used these connections to blackmail or to control these people. Plus, they uh, started infiltration of young graduate students from Canada, from United Kingdom, from um, uh, United States, and even from developing countries who happened to be in Kyiv, and they used these uh, students and these people to infiltrate these organizations. Again, why? Because KGB was ideological organization. That's why they uh, uh, did care about how the West presented the um, images of Ukraine or images of enemies of Ukraine. For example, they used archival documents about collaboration of uh, Ukrainians who fled from Ukraine to the West. And they they provide even even video material uh, to discredit Ukraine diaspora as fascist nationalistic, anti-Semitic uh, groups. In this case, they again used ideology to pursue one goal, to divide opponents of Soviet mm. socialism in Ukraine, and major opponents were Ukrainian nationalists and Jewish nationalists. And if they have these facts, about how Ukrainians killed Jews, and they present these facts in Canadian and American media. It was to discredit these organizations and to uh, use each other for this. But, but again, it's just one example of how ideology played very important role in KGB operation. That's why for us, uh, especially people who try to use Western approaches, it's very difficult to tell where active measures started mm -hmm. or espionage started, because they were sometimes connected and sometimes it was related directly to uh, 
uh, acts, terrorist acts. He forgot that KGB still killed people. And you remember Sergei Plahi's book about uh, Stashinsky case. It's a very famous case, but he beautifully wrote this book about uh, killing Bandera in 1959. This was only one case among many. Again, what is this? It's terrorist organization, terrorist operation, active measures operation, or special, um, you know, operation of KGB to uh, create um, some ideological moment because they need to remove, for example, Bandera from this historical Bandera lost control of his organization in Germany, but for ideological standpoint, was very important to remove him and replace uh, radical Bender White section with more um, uh, moderate so-called Melnik section. The same with uh, uh, ideology of Ukraine studies in the West. They uh, uh, KGB supported more moderate studies of Amelian Pritzak or other people who tried to be friendly with Soviet Union rather than uh, views of more radical Ukrainian scholars. So, hopefully mm -hmm. yeah. uh, I finish. So, and in your book you also say that uh, the goal of the KGB activities was to undermine the unity of Ukrainian uh, immigrant groups. Uh, and as you mentioned, there were a lot of measures which were undertaken to complete this goal, but um, would you probably focus on some that were completed and which would be regarded successful by the KGB? Boy, many of them. First, it's uh, using uh, communists in both United States and Canada, especially uh, leftists and communist Ukrainians. Uh, the most important and famous or infamous case is uh, uh, Kravchuk case. Uh, when um, they used Ukrainian-Canadian communist um, uh, Kravchuk, uh, who uh, from 1946 uh, collaborated with KGB, and uh, they used people like Kravchuk, uh, bribing them, of course, uh, giving them money, supporting their businesses. A lot of leftist businesses in Canada were on KGB payroll, forgot about this, uh, helping their children to get admission to Kyiv University and so on. And Petro Kravchuk and other people were used even against those communists who tried to criticize uh, Russification in Ukraine, for example. Uh, I describe in one chapter, it's one of the best chapters of my book, uh, this operation, KGB operation, when they use Kravchuk uh, against Kalaska, Ivan Kalaska, who uh, publicly criticized being 100% communist, uh, student of higher party school in Kyiv, who publicly criticized Russification of Soviet Ukraine. And eventually, uh, KGB succeeded. They, they actually uh, destroyed this 
radical um, anti-Russian position in Communist Party of Canada. Another example of the, their success, um, it's um, their operations against so-called spy schools in West Germany when they uh, used um, uh, to divide Russian nationalists who hated Ukrainians and Ukrainian nationalists who hated Russians. And they used this uh, Russian imperial, Russian nationalism against Ukrainian nationalism, um, trying to re, um, uh, recruit these uh, guys, uh, making them double agents. Uh, frankly speaking, all um, CIA operations, which were used Ukrainian nationals, Ukrainian uh, agents from these spy schools of 40s and 50s failed completely. And another success of KGB was uh, how they used uh, to recruit um, professors from these teachers from these schools. Uh, uh, in my book, I just gave three examples, but the most crucial examples major leaders of these spy schools who collaborated with Nazis during the war, who fled from uh, Soviet Ukraine um, after the war, who became teachers of these spy schools in Bavaria and Regensburg and other places in Germany, who were funded by CIA and other uh, British and um, American uh, intelligence, became double agents. And of course, they gave all these, uh, I, I put even uh, pictures uh, of those agents uh, of Ukrainian origins who were former refugees, Ostarbeiters, uh, some of them, not all of them, Benderweitz, uh, who collaborated with uh, Nazi, no, uh, who were probably uh, prisoners of war, uh, you know, soldiers of Soviet Army, uh, Red Army they stayed in, in Germany. So all these people eventually were recruited by these schools. They became uh, CIA agents. All of them failed. All of them were arrested or, um, uh, you know, they became double agents, but no one succeeded. And this is another example of how uh, KGB used to divide um, these pro-Russian or pro-Ukrainian uh, people in these uh, schools, or they used actually a very uh, interesting model of seductive America. Actually, it was my uh, first title for this book. So they um, uh, understood that uh, these teachers in uh, CIA schools and these American spy schools uh, uh, first, were frustrated with situation in Germany, with their life, and uh, they loved America. So what KGB agents did, they presented, again, ideological aspect, which we discussed at the beginning, they presented um, this image of Khrushchev, um, Ukraine, as Americanized Ukraine. Look, the Ukraine now listened to American jazz, uh, they have stilagi, they have all these new ideas why you should um, uh, criticize Soviet Union uh, is not Stalinist Soviet Union. 
and many of these uh, uh, instructors of spy schools uh, followed this uh, game. Plus, they had relatives in Kiev, in Dnipro, and other cities were used uh, again. But uh, it's it's for me it was um, a revelation that CIA uh, actually failed because of this very good ideological game. Uh, my major idea, probably I lost this in my book, that uh, uh, at the beginning uh, during the Civil War, uh, the West and the CIA actually missed the role of ideology, this totalitarian control of mm. mentality. Mm -hmm. And that's how, for example, today, uh, the West still couldn't understand Russian mentality. Mm -hmm. Because Russian mentality, like Soviet, mm -hmm. is product of brainwashing. It's not just one television show or uh, public uh, presentation of leader. No, it's entire lifestyle of Soviet people and entire style of Russian people today when uh, they have this massive total um, ideological control and ideological brainwashing uh, in their cultural rituals, in uh, their life beginning with kindergarten and finishing with school, high school, and so on. The same, it, it's, again, what happened in Russia today, it's a result of Soviet uh, tradition. And the West, including CIA agents, could not understand this because massive um, brainwashing of Soviet people and Soviet agents uh, actually mm -hmm. played a very important role in this uh, opposition to uh, CIA operations. Mm -hmm. And CIA failed. Mm -hmm. And I, I showed at the beginning of my book uh, this failure in these so-called spy schools mm -hmm. in uh, Germany. But along these lines, uh, you also um, touch upon this paradoxical response of some KGB agents who uh, would have business trips to the U.S. Uh, there is another quote in your book. According to contemporaries, all KGB people, after visiting America on the intelligence assignment, developed a psychological phenomenon which was known as a fondness of America and its people. Yeah, it's another paradox which we've forgotten. And <laughs> I think that if Putin would live not in Dresden, <laughs> but went to you know to Stuttgart, to Hamburg, to better life, who knows what happened? Because Putin is an uh, example of failed agent who never reached this imaginary West. He lived in socialist <laughs> East in Germany. Socialist Germany, but those guys who live in the West, not for one day, not for one week, for many years, developed this uh, paradoxical love for America. Mm -hmm. They loved the uh, American uh, products, they loved American uh, jeans, they loved American cigarettes, whatever, and uh, they uh, maintained this image of positive image of um, uh, America. It's not just in uh, uh, Kalugin memoirs, Kalugin general KGB memoirs, which I used for this quotation, but uh, 
also many people who uh, worked for KGB, like uh, Slava Nikonov, uh, grandchild of Molotov, who was one of the first participants of Fulbright program to visit the United States. And uh, I still remember how he described, I met him in Moscow in the 80s. Uh, many of uh, my music records came from, <laughs> from him. So these guys actually developed this very strange attitude to the United States. I call this love-hate relations. And uh, uh, many of them actually um, try even to collaborate with, with uh, um, uh, Secret Service of the United States when it was appropriate. I described in 1972 this case of uh, Nixon visit to Soviet Union when the first time Soviet Secret Service and uh, American Secret Service collaborated together. They provided classified information about dissidents, about people who tried to kill Nixon or Brezhnev and they developed very good relations. They, it was, you know, like uh, part of my book, it's um, revelation of, about American civilization made by these um, agents because they discovered different civilization with cheap cars, with uh, different kind of fashions, with openness. And uh, many of them maintain this positive image despite all this uh, ideological confrontation, uh, they still maintain this positive image of America. Uh, they uh, drank together in 1972. They exchanged information. They helped each other. But again, problem with these people, they were too ideologized mm. by their ideological departments. So when try to develop these relations, uh, this pressure from above, uh, from the party, because they were, you know, special organization of the party, actually stopped these relations. And eventually, they finished with uh, cases of espionage. And again, you need to understand uh, another feature of my book, how this love-hate relations with America contributed to very good technological espionage very effective, 80-90% uh, of all so-called Soviet um, technological innovation, especially in um, computer technology, uh, communication technology, was just basically stolen from Americans and brought to Kiev, to Moscow, to other centers. So, um, and again, uh, this was also a result of this strange love-hate relations, uh, which I described in my previous book, Soviet Americana. Um, it's it's uh, another paradox. Uh, and uh, I still think that people in Moscow uh, would take different position if they would live in America for one or two years. Mm. Not like uh, Putin, who um, lived in socialist Germany, or Patrushev, who never lived in the United States. So what, what is missing in, uh, now in the Russian leadership, 
this nostalgia for imaginary American past, which would help uh, uh, these KGB officers who lead now in uh, in uh, post-Soviet Russia. But I would add another very important uh, thing, which we forgot. With all this comparison of post-Soviet K- uh, intelligence service, FSB, and uh, Soviet, uh, Ukraine, SBU, and other, we have very important difference. Before 1991, KGB was part of this ideological, political group in the party. Uh, with uh, today developments, we have different KGB capitalism in Russia, uh, with very different ideological um, developments, and uh, with no party control. Mm-hmm. What was good about um, Khrushchev and Brezhnev period, they established control over KGB after Stalin. Now we're back to Stalin's time, but again, Stalin also had Politburo. Now in Russia, we had no such thing as limits and control or monitoring service of this organization, which did exist in Soviet Union. Uh, in uh, one of the chapters, you also talk about um, all kinds of uh, exhibitions which were attended by KGB agents, and uh, you uh, make this note that uh, KGB agents would sometimes forget about their um, intelligence assignment, and they would just start taking notes in order to study uh, foreign mentality. And it looks like, uh, um, to some extent, they were probably intrigued, right, by meeting the other and they 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 were intrigued to study um this different culture or other culture um so uh, how uh, detailed um to what extent um, um these um notes were detailed and wh- whether these notes were helpful for understanding the west in this kind in this case for understanding um the united states and american culture well, these documents had tremendous role. I never expected to read these uh, very detailed reports. But for me, it was sure, you know, I decided to use these reports word by word for my book because it was like encyclopedia of Soviet interests about how Americans live, how American think or thought uh, in those days. So. Uh, for me, it was encyclopedia of uh, Soviet-American relations from, you know, from position of ordinary Soviet person who happened to be an agent. Uh, I, uh, for example, uh, one of the best part of my book is um, description of these American exhibitions in Kiev. I used the most uh, detailed uh, reports from 1964 um, uh, American exhibition about communication. And uh, what I found, it's tremendous interest in even in uh, personal life, sexual relations with people. Uh, for example, KGB sometimes tried to use 
their agents to seduce, to make love to American girls, to American lady, to use her in the future. And uh, for many of these American, uh, excuse me, Soviet seducers, Soviet uh, sexual agents, was a shock how these American girls behaved in different way from this traditional stereotype of Soviet, you know, man domineering practice. Um, and uh, uh, eventually these agents submitted all these details about dinner, about uh, trips to museums, to restaurants, with little information what how their partner behaved how they reacted uh, you know i try to be very <laughs> careful because sometimes these reports contain very uh, uh graphic sexual <laughs> details but again it, it showed just ordinary human curiosity because supervisors of these kgb officers did not redacted or removed mm -hmm. these de details. They underlined oh. them. Okay. They read them. So uh, not only I enjoy reading these, uh, you know, very graphic details of uh, seducing, seduction, um, interaction, but also KGB supervisors mm -hmm, mm -hmm. read and enjoyed reading all this. So for many of these KGB operatives, uh, these operations against uh, staff of uh, American exhibitions was again revelation or open door to different civilization, different uh, style. You know, many uh, of these reports, for example, contained um, details about uh, homosexual couple. You know, it's for Soviets of 1964, it was very difficult even to imagine these kinds of relations. Um, and um, uh, then um, people could understand how uh, their agents could uh, change their partners. So it's, it's uh, uh, very interesting uh, and uh, very readable material. So that's why I put this uh, in my book as well, to show that um, these reports contain not just acts of espionage, mm -hmm. because sometimes they just um, contain this deal information, what kind of equipment uh, American use, what we should uh, exploit or should steal and so on. But uh, these everyday details, you know, life of American young uh, men and women uh, uh, had so attractive details for um, these um, KGB agents that they could not avoid to put this. And it's uh, for example, one uh, report I still remember when uh, describing how one agent tried to seduce Greek-American girl who worked for exhibition Kiev contained more uh, details of what this girl uh, loved to eat, to drink, um, how she behaved, 
how he, she played a uh, music instrument. You know, all these people actually um, demonstrated that these American guests had certain intellectual abilities mm -hmm. um, and they attracted uh, these agents not only because they were foreigners, but because they had these intellectual abilities and tastes, tastes for new music. They call this jazz music, but obviously it wasn't jazz, but also rock and roll. They call this beat music. And it's interesting how KGB became involved, KGB people became involved in exchanging these tapes of forbidden American jazz, uh, obviously rock and roll music, and I assume uh, they still use these tapes for their own uh, personal um, uh, listening. Uh, so it's, it's, it's so these connections was connection not only uh, to discover technological secrets, but also discover civilization, mm -hmm. different mm -hmm. kind of. Uh, people living. And I think that uh, to some extent uh, the opening of Soviet Union and involvement of these KGB uh, agents in this process was also part of this uh, widening of dialogues between the West and Soviet Union. But unfortunately, after 1979, after Afghanistan, uh, so it began closing this. Mm -hmm. As a result, we have uh, escalation of tensions mm -hmm. and the end of this um, uh, discovery. So to some extent, my book is also about uh, this lost opportunities, lost uh, opportunity to understand each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to some extent, what happened today, it's a result of misunderstanding. Uh, post-Soviet space and the West. Yeah, um, so it looks like on the one hand um, the uh, KGB machinery, right, was paying um, attention to very delicate and very intimate details, but on the other hand um, there was of course this attempt to limit the exposure to the other, and um, one of the final parts of your book also uh, covers some information about books that were forbidden in the USSR. So would you just briefly talk about those books which were not allowed in the USSR during the time period that you um, discussed? But, uh, you know, one, uh, actually many of these books about um, uh, erotic experience, about um, sexual life, uh, were circulated in our region, in our oval, Sherkasko. Uh, okay. I still remember this because um, uh, I knew about the existence in Vatutin, in Zunirovsky, Rayon, Cherkasko, and in Cherkasko as well. So I, I just found this proof that uh, it was again um, another KGB operation because KGB tried to, um, uh, to stop uh, dissemination of so-called forbidden books and um, uh, some of these books were instructions of sex, how to uh, behave sexually, how to express uh, sexually, um, how to um, gratify your sexual desires in sexual acts. 
and uh, KGB was uh, also shocked when they discovered that uh, party uh, personnel of uh, uh, um uh, party uh, newspaper actually disseminated these American books about sexual life, about uh, sexual activities, about sexual uh, forms and, uh, uh, and techniques. And uh, KGB tried to stop this, but again, it was, uh, I tried to explain this, it was the result of opening of the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. because in the period of detente, Soviets and Americans signed special agreements about the book change. And paradoxically, not only book of famous American and British uh, writers, but also books about erotic and um, sexual techniques. It's not pornography. It's very important, uh, you know, literature uh, which was consumed by all Western people. But it's also officially uh, came to Kiev through these uh, detente relations of the 70s. And uh, when KGB tried to stop this, it was too late. They were translated into Russian, Ukrainian. They were disseminated everywhere in uh, uh, in uh, Soviet Ukraine. The same happened with uh, videotapes. I uh, explained this earlier. So these books uh, became part of KGB operations. And again, KGB failed in this case. So if you analyze actually conclusions of my chapters, you will see that uh, in uh, a real of spy games, Soviet KGB succeeded. But in the arena of everyday culture consumption, they failed because of ideology and because of economy. Economy didn't work. Mm -hmm. So to some extent, uh, my book, uh, you know, uh, summary of my book, it's about succession of or successes of KGB in diplomacy and in foreign relations. I, I, I showed how Soviets actually tried to influence American Canadian politicians and they succeeded this. They even tried to bribe um, candidate uh, of 1968 presidential campaign in the uh, um, United States. So to some extent, they succeeded. They succeeded in um, uh, discrediting Ukrainian diaspora as fascist, as nationalistic, as racist, anti-Afro-American, and so on. So they succeeded on this front. But in domestic front, mm -hmm. it was complete mm -hmm. failure. Mm -hmm. People still continue to listen to rock and roll, watch American movies, uh, wear American jeans, and of course, read about uh, sexual techniques and use them in everyday life. So, so your your book was just <laughs> your book was just published, but uh, I'm sure that you already have your new project. So would you just share a couple of ideas on what you're working right now? Uh, actually, I um, uh, collected so many materials and more important. Um, as we were archive provided uh, us with digital 
information about uh, files you 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 ordered. So I have all these digital information <laughs> by mm-hmm. computer. So I decided. So this book was my first um, attempt mm-hmm. to show major operations covered by these documents. Again, I use the most sexy, the most catchy document. For example, I use documents about uh, Safyanova, double agent who tried to seduce uh, uh, Soviet agents and work for CIA. Um, I tried to use documents about espionage and roll of these exhibits about uh, hippie and rock and roll and punks about these uh, erotic books. So what I found uh, the first, I tried to put this in a book to show everybody, especially people in the West, this richness, uh, wealth of material which is which still exists in um, uh, in Kiev in this blue archive. Plus, it was my revenge, as a revenge uh, for people of KGB who did not allow me to use their archives when I um, wrote my book about Dipropetrovsk, Rock and Roll They did not allow me to go there. Mm. So now I have this revenge. So this was my first, probably very awkward, because I put in this book everything from sex to rock and roll, from diplomacy to espionage. So it's the first awkward, probably, but still very substantial attempt to dig in these archives. Mm-hmm. Next step will be more detailed and more professional. I will write, uh, well, I began uh, writing a book and I have a couple of offers from different British and American publishers. Um, It will be more scandalous book. It will be called uh, KGB and Western Academia or how uh, Soviet and Russian intelligence tried to influence Slavic studies in the English-speaking world. I will concentrate on United States, Canada, and uh, United Kingdom, especially um, London School of Economics, uh, which became inf- infamous for uh, taking money from either Libya or from uh, Russian oligarchs uh, and using this money for very bad purposes. So I will try to show how since 1958, from the year of the first exchange, academic exchange between Soviets and Americans, um, KGB, and then later on after 1991, Russian FSB, and group tried to use and misuse and abuse various Slavic centers uh, in in the West, in the English-speaking West, to influence uh, them and to support positive images. Remember, our considerable by the ideology, the major point of ideological approach is creation of positive image of Russia. It's very important. That's why 
they would use Cannon Institute, they would use uh, Harvard University, uh, Sanders Davis, and Ukrainian Research Institute for the one reason to create and maintain and disseminate a positive image, pro Russian image of Russian political, economic, and cultural ideological actions. And I finished with 1920, uh, with 2022, with the uh, uh, next step in uh, uh, Russian war against Ukraine, because Russian war against Ukraine started, as you remember, in 2014, mm -hmm. just next step, to, to, to show, to demonstrate how uh, now Russian Secret Service, now Russian intelligence used famous think tanks and um, uh, various um, Slavic centers for uh, their operation. It uh, now with one big difference: they have more money from post-Soviet space. They could corrupt uh, members of these centers, Western politicians. And uh, I just give you a sense of what kind of uh, you know such name as Anna Applebaum. Mm -hmm. You know that the, she had position in the London School of Economics. Mm -hmm. She was very dangerous for Russians with her criticism of uh, Putin's politics. Despite all her wonderful book, you remember book about Gulag and so on, and book about uh, famine in Ukraine, furthermore. So what happened with her? She was removed. Well, I'm, uh, I'm really looking forward to your new publication, to your new book. But for now, congratulations again on KGB operations against the USA and Canada in Soviet Union, 1953-1991. And thank you so much for this, for this research uh, that help us better understand how the KGB operated and uh, even how the Soviet Union um, operated. Um, at the same time, as you pointed out in this interview, it also sheds light, light on how Russia operates today. So it's very relevant and very helpful for the present moment as well. And you uh, put it, uh, and you mentioned that maybe the book is a little bit awkward, but uh, because it includes uh, so many aspects. But on the yeah, other so hand, many aspects, so but, many. but on the other hand, all these multiple aspects also show how much is taken in order to create this positive image. So it's not only about history, it's not only about political development, but it's also about culture, and that's what we talk to uh, today about. We talk about Russian culture and cancelling Russian culture and how it is connected with the political moment. So thank you so much, Sergei. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, today I spoke with Sergei Zhuk, author of KGB Operations Against the USA and Canada in Soviet Ukraine 1953-1991, published by Routledge in 2022. Thank you for listening to New Books in Ukrainian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.